Welcome to the Breaking Stars Podcast, where we point you to the teaching programs for the jobs that you want. And today we're interviewing the CEO of one of our favorite organizations called Lambda School, where they train you to become a software engineer at no cost until you secured a high paying job. If you actually want to meet one of Lambda School's graduates, make sure you join us on October 29th at Slack headquarters. Uh, where Abby, who graduated from Lambda School, is now working as a software engineer at Nordstrom. She explains how Lambda School helped her get to where she is today. Um, and she's going to also be joined by other software engineers that are working at Pinterest and Slack and other companies uh, that graduated from coding boot camps as well. Um, if you want to learn more about whether Lambda School is right for you, go to breakingintostartups.com slash webinar. And on this episode, we're going to go uh, much deeper into other things that Lambda School offers, including things like stipends and, and ideas related to housing and their thoughts on the future of education. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, um, make sure that you join our community, uh, like our Facebook group, and uh, leave some feedback about how we're doing so we can learn how to get better. Um, and I would not be doing an intro right if I not did not give a proper congratulations to Austin, who is the CEO of Lambda School, because on October 8, 2018, he just raised $14 million from Google Ventures, uh, Stripe, Y Combinator, and several other people to support the 700 people that he's helping uh, become full-time software engineers and pursue and protect their dreams. So without further ado, let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archer and Timor Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, so it's a Monday night. It's a 5.30 p.m. And we usually interview people who've broken into high-growth startups. Today, we actually have a founder of a high-growth startup, and they're not just building another tech product. They're building the future school for the 21st century students, and they're helping thousands of people learn how to code. Ruben, can you please introduce the guest? Absolutely. We're here with the CEO of Lambda School. For those of you that don't know, Lambda just came out of Y Combinator. They have thousands of students, and he's the person that you have to follow on Twitter right now. Before this, he was also a growth expert at LendUp, and he's done a lot of other amazing things that we're going to go into. But for now, we're going to start off by just saying welcome, Austin. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thank you for joining us. And so from what I understand, you grew up in Utah, yep, in rural Utah, and you moved to the Bay. You know, How did that transition happen? Yeah. So right before I moved to the Bay Area, I was living actually on my in-law's farm. So they have a hay farm in central Utah, kind of middle of nowhere, just us and some hay and that's pretty much it. And, you know, I, I had previously dropped out of college. Um, I just felt like I wasn't getting enough value for the time. It was really cheap. The money didn't matter as much, but the, the time that I was spending relative to what I felt like I was getting out of it, I wasn't. I, so I just dropped out, which was not looked upon kindly by my parents, but, you know, that's, you have to do what you have to do sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I know when we first connected, I, I saw a thread that you put up about student loans, and student loans are at an all time high now. In the trillions. You have a lot of thoughts about education. Talk to us a little bit about that and the kind of findings that you discovered that evening when you were going in online. Yeah. I mean, student loans, if you look at the cost of tuition, it's gone up something like 3,000% since the 1980s. Yet the return for a bachelor's degree has gone down over time. Mm -hmm. So in my parents' generation, you know, when I was growing up, all anybody said was go to college, go to college, go to college. Doesn't matter what it costs. Doesn't matter what you study. Just get a degree and you're going to be fine on the other side. And I've got friends with six figures in student loans and no job that says otherwise, right? Yeah. And I'm sure you guys probably all have the, the same experience. So I, you know, I wasn't going to be in six figures of student loans, but I just, I know I felt like I wasn't getting what I wanted out of that time. So, yeah. so time was a big thing for me. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And time is probably like one of the most expensive things that you could spend. And now that people are thinking about different alternatives, not just for whether they should go back to school for entry-level jobs or mid- and senior-level jobs, now they're looking for these short-form versions of education because mm -hmm. there was MOOCs that popped up. Yep. You know, what's the difference between you know, massive open online courses and these boot camps? 
I think a big difference is just the structure, right? And like how it's built. So a MOOC is just like, hey, you can watch a bunch of videos, but if you get stuck, you're on your own. If anything happens, you're on your own. There's nobody there to make sure you're doing something or correct if you're doing something wrong. It's just, you know, the material is there, which it's better than nothing, right? I don't don't want to don't want people to feel like I'm bashing MOOCs. I'm glad that that's there. Yeah. But I don't think it's the final solution to anything. Got it. And so for the people that don't know, these coding boot camps started like in 2012, I think. Mm-hmm. They, you know, short form, they started off kind of like it's three month immersive, like took essentially what was in colleges for two to four years and condensed it into the practical things you got to know for that amount of time. Yep. And a lot of them were like tuition up front. Some of them were deferred tuition. And then now there's these income share agreements. Can you kind of walk us through those models and you know what your thoughts are about that right now? Yeah. So, I mean, in the beginning, it was just a couple of crazy guys that were like, you know what, I could teach you to code pretty quickly. And there's a huge demand. And you know, why don't you just pay me you know, 10, 15 grand and I'll teach you to code and you can see if it works and you can go get a job. And that, that worked surprisingly. A lot of people didn't think it would, but turns out the skills that people require don't actually take four years to, to get, right? So, you know, as that industry has kind of grown and developed, there started to be kind of tuition deferred where you'd pay, you know, after you graduated a little bit. And now I think that the future is going to be income share agreements, which is at least at Lambda School, I can't speak for, for every school, but none of our students pay anything until they get a job in the industry they've studied that pays them more than 50000 a year. So to start off, if they don't get that job, they don't pay us anything. Yeah. And uh, personally, when I went and did a coding bootcamp, I went through App Academy and one of the things that attracted me was the deferred tuition model. Mm-hmm. Basically, the school is incentivized to help you find a job because you're paying them once you get a job and they get a percentage of your salary. Can you talk about how, I guess, incentives of boot camps are different than incentives of colleges? Yeah. And the primary driver is the tuition. So what are your thoughts on that? It's funny because you know, we, we talk to a lot of people at universities and administrators and stuff and you know, we talk to them about like, what are your outcomes? What is the debt to income ratio of your graduates? Mm-hmm. What, what does all that look like? And I've been shocked at the number that say, you know what, that's just not our focus. That's not what we think about. Mm-hmm. College isn't here to help you get a job. We're here to help you become a better, more well-rounded person. But if you ask the student, why are you going to college? Right. 99% yeah. are just like, I'm, I'm here <laughs> so I can have a career. Yeah. Right? And if not, that's a really expensive thing to do to become a well-rounded person. So I yeah I've I've just been shocked that you know you you hear a lot of myths and rumors about how academia thinks that way but I didn't realize how literal that is like most colleges and I can't say that for all of them but but a lot of them they literally don't consider it their role to help you get a job and so so this thing this idea started off with a bunch of crazy guys and it started working and mm-hmm. then it started growing from 2012 to now I think last year like 25,000 people graduated versus like 50,000 from four year universities and Apparently, that number is growing like 50% year over year. But can you talk to us a little bit more about the size of this alternative form of education or just engineers in general and the need for it and why people are pushing towards that direction? Yeah, that's that's a funny question we get a lot is, you know, is the market saturated? Are there too many engineers for the jobs? But but what you're not realizing is, you know, what is the growth of like the technology industry? Uh, Mark Andreessen talks about how, you know, software is eating the world and pretty much every company has a software role now, right? Like we have graduates that are working in software at Nordstrom. I had a graduate that just interviewed at Sonic Drive-Ins on oh. their on their tech team. Like literally every company has a software, you know, or a tech element to it now. You know, and we actually met with a VP at Amazon a few weeks ago and he said, you know, three or four years from now, Amazon will be hiring enough that we could literally hire every single computer science grad in the US, just Amazon alone, and it still wouldn't be enough to fill our pipeline wow. of how many engineers we're going to need. That's and that's, that's one company, yeah. right? It's a big company, but that's just one of the thousands and thousands of companies. Yeah, and if software's in the, eating the world, there's plenty of opportunities. And so, so with that said, you know, another thing that comes up when people talk about the, the boot camps is like, some of them are doing really well. Some of them are shutting down. Some of them are getting acquired. I know a recent acquisition that happened was the Hack Reactor Galvanize. Like, what are your thoughts about consolidation in the space? What are your thoughts about the General Assembly acquisition by ADECO or even recruit holdings acquiring Glassdoor? Like, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of really healthy consolidation happening in the space. So when people realize that you could teach somebody to program and charge them $10,000 and they can get a job on the other side, everybody said, you know what, that's what I want to do. 
and there were varying levels of seriousness about it and varying levels of quality around it. Turns out it's a lot harder to teach people to program than most non-instructors think it would be. So there are just code schools popping up all over the place. So I think what we're seeing is the schools that are more expensive on the top are competing over fewer students that can actually afford that kind of education. So if I'm a hack reactor and I'm charging, you know, $18,000, $20,000 up front in San Francisco, at a certain point, you just run out of people that can pay that kind of money if there are 80 other boot camps opening up charging 80, you know, $20,000. So I think there, you know, that market of people that have $20,000 in their pocket is smaller than people had assumed. But on the other hand, I feel like the market of people who are able and willing to learn to code is much, much bigger than anybody even realizes yet. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And given that all these programs are popping up and one of the nice things about colleges is like things like accreditation and like knowing quality, even though there's obviously bias with credentials and Ivy League status stuff. But um, how do you feel about quality and standards? I know there's like the CIRR standards and Council mm-hmm. for like, how do you feel about like holding these boot camps accountable to know to what they're actually saying? Because people can just look at it like a get rich quick scheme. Yeah. I mean, boot camps promise a lot, right? And it's, it's still a tough, steep hill to climb if you're going to go from you know, making 20K a year in a non-development job to making, you know, call it, you know, some schools in San Francisco advertise 100K plus. Like that's a big, big swing in income. I think that if you're going to charge people a bunch of money, you absolutely should be beholden to what the results are. And that's one of the things I love about, you know, Lambda School and our income share agreement is we literally will never make a penny unless it works for you. And yeah. I think that's fair. That's, that's really difficult to do from a school's perspective. Yeah. But I think it's a better deal for the students overall. Yeah, no, I think it's incredible just because very few organizations in life are kind of like outcomes based. I mean, mm-hmm. look at healthcare, look at you know education, a lot of things like that. So you all are are taking a stand in that regard. I think it's a perfect segue to go into Lambda School. So like your vision is to you know help people go from low income to high income very quickly. Yep. I'm kind of unpacked that where you started because I know you started with education. You're doing housing. You're doing a lot in a year, and it's very respectable. How do you go about that? Yeah. So if I take it back to where it started, you know, I was working in San Francisco and we were giving out like $10,000 engineer referral bonuses, where if you bring, you know, we were growing so quickly. If you bring an engineer into the company, we'd, you know, you as an employee would get paid $10,000 for referring that person. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go back home and I had friends that were making, you know, 20, 30 K a year and are just as smart as me or anybody else. They just didn't have the same opportunities. And frankly, they didn't have the same amount of cash that, and I didn't have a lot, right? Just it, it takes a little bit to be able to move to San Francisco and break your way in. Yeah. So I, you know, I started trying to figure out how I could help people like that who are very talented. They're very smart. They haven't had the same opportunities. They probably can't afford to move to San Francisco on their own dime. How would that work? And so, you know, the first thing was that we wanted to make it online, which is difficult. It's a lot of people try to take a school that's offline and just put it online. And that never works. It has to be different from the ground up. And then, yeah, over time, we, we layered in the income share agreement. And now almost all of our students are completely free up front. Wow. That's impressive. And so how, what's the structure like? So I, I go to the Lambda School website. I choose how many different tracks you have now? Uh, yeah, I think we've got five. So we've got full stack web development, iOS development, Android development, data science and UX design. Got it. So I click one of those and then mm-hmm. I'm brought into some kind of prep program or an assessment or how does that work? Yeah. So this is, this is where a school like ours differs from most schools because we're not, we're not just collecting tuition from people, right? We're actually investing in people. We're placing bets and saying, you know, we'll train you and it's going to cost us ten, fifteen thousand $15,000, whatever to train you. And we need you get, to get a job on the other side. So the way that we make sure that people are dedicated and capable is we have free introductory courses. So those, you know, whether or not you want to participate in Lambda School, those are free, but we open those up. We teach them every two weeks for each, you know, course. It's, you can either do it self-paced or live with live help. And basically we look at how you perform in that course and we see like, does this person actually have what it takes when it, when it gets down to it? Yeah. So does everyone who takes the course, like at the end, they take an assessment or some sorts or... If I'm interested in Lambda School, then what would be kind of like my application process into the funnel? Yep. So you would apply and then we would assign you to an intro course. Mm -hmm. You would do the intro course and we're gathering data all along the way. 
and then there's a challenge, which is a technical assessment, and then there's a final interview. Mm. So it's kind of a longer process than, yeah. than most schools, but I mean, it's it's a serious investment on our end. I mean, yeah, um, I mean, you're take, taking a big bet. And what's, what's impressive is like, I know we're talking about averages, but the people that get in through your assessment and through your program, it's an average of like one or two months for them to go from where they started to getting into a job, right? Yeah. So after they finish Lambda School, I mean, we have... We have students that are hired within a week. Wow. Obviously, that's not everybody. Average is right around three months yeah. to get hired, Yeah, which is still pretty quick. For, oh, yeah. Super yeah. quick. Yeah. And how long is Lambda School? And that's that's another difference between us and most boot camps. So Lambda School is 30 weeks long, so mm-hmm. seven and a half months full time. Mm-hmm. And you know, as we because we're working backwards from what does it take to get a job, you know, we go around and we talk to all of the employers and you know, ask them, what do boot camp grads have? What are they lacking? What do we actually need to teach? And without fail, all of them would say, you know, they're all lacking these 10 things. You go talk to boot camps, you know, why aren't you teaching these things? And it's because they don't have time, yeah. right? They're charging 15K up front, so they only have 12 weeks to teach what are, you. What are some of those things that you guys are focused on that boot camps aren't? Computer science generally is how we describe it. So it's stuff like memory management, scalability, operating systems, software architecture, mm-hmm. stuff that, I mean, every boot camp would teach that if they had time, right? Mm-hmm. Every software engineer recognizes that that stuff is necessary, but it just doesn't fit in 12 weeks if you yeah. have to learn JavaScript and React. Yeah. And you mentioned that from the ground up, you designed the school to be online. Mm-hmm. Um, when I did a boot camp, it was in person. So what were those differences of like the differences that you incorporate into the online curriculum and how is that working out for the students who might be taking online courses for the first time in their lives. Like, what is your Mm -hmm. experience with that? I firmly believe that online is actually a better experience once you get it. So so the key differences are that you're not all in the same room. So you have to make it really easy to coordinate with other people. And you don't see the same subtle cues that you would. So we use a lot of software running in the background to determine how somebody's doing, you know, how they're feeling, what they're up to at any given time this person needs help. This person's doing really well. This person needs more work because they're doing so well. And then you have to keep it in small groups. So every student, so for every group of eight students, we have paid, you know, 30 hour a week TA that is there to, to help them out. And that's what it requires for us to scale. Mm-hmm. The big advantages are that you don't have to commute. You don't have to move. You don't, you know, we can have 80 people with an instructor that we're paying a ridiculous amount of money to because mm-hmm. he's world class instead of, you know, having to pay somebody less because you can only fit 30 people in a room if they want to see the screen at the same time. So there's there's a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. So what are, what would be like the day-to-day of a student? You mentioned there's uh, like groups of people with a TA per eight students and then there's mm-hmm. like world-class instructors. So what would be like a day-to-day and what kind of interaction does a student get? Yeah. So you show up in the morning, there's a code challenge. That's Mm -hmm. kind of a brain teaser. You'll spend half an hour working on that. And then we have a solution review where somebody kind of walks you through a few different ways that they would have solved it. And then we follow something called I do, we do, you do, where the instructor has a project. He basically introduces a topic and builds out that project. And then we do kind of pair programming with the instructor. So you'll open up on your screen, a different project. He's got a different screen. He codes it out and then you code it out alongside him. And then finally, you're, you know, you're off on your own for, for what we call the you do project. So you build that out and then you have a code review that takes you basically to lunch. You come back after there's a different project that uses the same you know, stuff that you learned in the first half of the day. Um, you build that out for two or three hours and then we have a stand up and there's live help all along the way. And we have a help channel and there's instant help if you ever need it. But then at the end of the day, there's a stand-up where you get together with the other students in your group and you say, this is what I'm working on. This is what I'm stuck on. This is what I don't understand. And then, I mean, there's a lot of different stuff. Tuesdays and Thursday evenings, we have after hours, which is kind of a review session. And you can jump forward or backward to any cohort and review any of the topics. And Friday, we have a sprint assessment. And that's basically our test, I would call it. I don't like calling it a test because that's not what it is, but it's Here's a project that incorporates all of the stuff that you should have learned this week. You'll do the sprint assessment and then you have an hour long code review that looks through everything that you did that week, you know, critiques you and sees if you're ready to move on to the next week. It's like a performance, like to demonstrate that you've learned the stuff. Yep, and exactly. so when people hear the word boot camp, they get scared, right? So because mm-hmm. like it sounds intense, right? It's like 
a lot of times are 80 to $100 a week. And I know you kind of describe the day-to-day. Is it like that? Is it super intense, like with 80, 100 hours a week to learn this information in a short amount of time? I know it's a little bit longer, but talk about that. And I know you have this concept of butt and seat, even though you're online. Can mm-hmm. you talk about that? Yeah, I, I think one of the most difficult things about being, I mean, learning programming in general, well, learning anything in general, is just putting in the hours, right? It takes longer than most people think it does. And most people aren't disciplined enough to force themselves to do it. So even though Lambda School is online, everybody is butt in seat 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific. Obviously, you know, we have a lunch break. We have breaks in between then. And then, yeah, so it's, it's a full-time 40-hour-a-week commitment. And then a lot of students will be building stuff after hours on their own time. And then we have scheduled after-hours reviews for, you know, two or three hours a week. And then we have optional stuff on Saturdays. So some of it is optional, but on average... By the time you're graduating from Lambda School, you're looking at something like 1,500 hours. Oh, that's not too bad. But I mean, I, I like the, the way the structure, you have the 40 hours, the after hours, and it's pretty good. I mean, with the 168 hours in a week, that's possible. So. And I think especially since it sounds like you guys are investing so much into the students and it doesn't cost them anything, right? Until they find a job, right? which is kind of amazing that you guys have created this system with support daily, right? With world-class instructors, TAs, help desks. And basically, as long as you have the discipline and determination to learn how to code, like you just put in the hours and you guys will take care of the rest. Yeah. And you yeah. all have career coaches too. Right? Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, that's another thing, you know, with, with our incentives being aligned with a student where we don't get paid unless you get a job, we have a full, a team. So our, we have a team called the outcomes team. So their only job is to help you get a job. So we do something called Lambda Next, mm-hmm. which is after you graduate same thing. You show up at 8 a.m. You're working 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And we've structured and helped you out that full day as well. But that's focused on getting you a job. So that is, you know, tweaking your portfolio. That's submitting open source projects. That's, you know, there are a couple hours a day to apply. There's a meetup a week that you're supposed to go to. So, so stuff like that. But it's still very structured, very hands-on. Because we find that it's just as hard to get the job as it is to learn to program. And how do you make sure that people follow through on applying for jobs and things like that after they graduate? Generally, they want a job. (laughs) So we do have a program. So we have a leaderboard that shows... We track how many jobs you've applied for. And we track if you're doing all the stuff that you're supposed to do. And when we have people from the outside that come in, for example, I think probably three students today, I had people reach out like, hey, who are your students that are doing really well right now? I want to hire them we look at that leaderboard, we see who's actually putting in the work and those are the ones that we place first. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I personally placed three students today based on that alone. Yeah, wow. that's impressive. <laughs> so I had a question about the type of people who take Lambda School. It is a pretty big time commitment. I know you mentioned the tuition, it's on the back end once someone gets a job, but you do have to uh, go through the program for six months and then you mentioned that on average, it takes someone three months to get a job. So overall, like, I guess, who is the type of person that goes through it? And maybe you can describe some stories and call out some people who, who like are the top of the mind for you. Yeah. So one of the really cool things about Lambda School is, you know, a lot of the schools that charge 20K up front, they have a certain type of student that, you know, they went to Harvard and they're looking to move into tech. Like that's not us. Our students generally come from I mean, poorer backgrounds in general. And that's not true across the board. But we, you know, we're really, I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what you're doing for work. I don't care how much money you have. What I want is somebody with grit and is determination and is willing to put in the work. Other than that, we can solve for everything. So one of our first students that was hired, a man who was working, you know, he had a couple kids, single father, African-American in Georgia. One oh, that's of the, where I'm from. One, one, where we're from. One of the southern states. I, I, it was either Mississippi or Georgia. I'm pretty sure. But yeah, working in an Amazon warehouse and now he's a software engineer at Uber. So his income is like 5x what it was. Yeah. That's um, cool. Yeah. And since your program is online and a lot of the tech jobs are usually centered around like metropolitan areas, which is not necessarily true because there's also remote jobs, but kind of how do you see the tech job markets kind of Outside of the big cities, New York, San Francisco, how do you see those uh, tech like cities developing? And can you still find jobs in rural areas of these midwestern and southern states? Yeah, this that's a secret that I don't want the other code schools to figure out. <laughs> actually, 
we find that it's harder to get a job in San Francisco than it is in rural Ohio. Mm-hmm. Because if you're coming to San Francisco, you're competing against all of the top tech talent in the world that is trying to get into one place. If you're in Canton, Ohio, you're the only engineer in Canton, Ohio. Yeah. And if, you know, if you're a Kroger and you have to hire 100 software engineers in Canton, Ohio, yeah. you've got to take who shows up. Yeah. And frankly, the standard of living is probably higher than it is. I mean, I, I was in Columbus area. last week and I was thinking about the same exact thing. And we were talking about that phenomenon right there, that there's less competition in that regard. And speaking about career coaches, though, something that I'm, I've seen a lot for people that are in the job search is that a lot of companies will still say, oh, you're too junior. Like, we don't hire junior engineers. What are your thoughts about like internships and apprenticeships? Like, are there things like that happening in other places or just right here? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that's all, that's all over the place. I think... So first of all, I think the year two junior is like, so when we're a startup and we're raising money, people say like, oh, you're not far enough along yet. That really just means no, right? It doesn't matter how junior you are if you're good. So that said, you know, if you can get a year of experience under your belt, the whole world opens up and you can go work anywhere you want to. Yeah. So we've generally found that you can overcome that if you're good enough of an engineer and getting into a, a normal job. And we kind of build out internships as a backstop. Got it. That said, you know, we're, we're working on some really high profile internships with some of the top companies in the world. That, that's different, right? It's different if you're, you're going to be an intern at Tesla. That's very real. If you're going to be an intern at Stripe, that's very real. If you're going to be an intern at some web dev shop that you've never heard of before, sometimes that's just you not getting paid as much. So it all depends. So yeah, so I think it's really cool that you're working on all this internships and apprenticeships with with Lambda. Something else that we've seen in the job search is that people don't think about what they're building in their portfolio as much. And a lot of times, if you build a a project that's personal to you, it's helpful, even though you might be quote unquote junior. So how do you think about project selection in addition to company selection? Yeah, I think one of the big mistakes that you'll see people make when they're looking for a job is they they just do the project that they did in school, right? Mm-hmm. And it's always like, okay, we're going to clone Twitter. <laughs> and that, that shows that you can do basic stuff. But I think what a lot of people want to see is that you're actually able to take stuff out of the classroom, build stuff that matters to you, build stuff that you think about and put thought into. And that's not, not always super obvious to people. Another, another thing that, I mean, we... We highly encourage our students to find an open source community. We have a yeah. few lined up and, you know, make an open source contribution. And, you know, all of our students after part of Lambda Next is like creating an NPM package, which is basically just contributing code to the broader landscape of, you know, people that write code for free. And that has like that single signal will boost you into a job interview faster than anything I've ever seen. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we talk about signals a lot. A lot of the times in an interview, it's about the impression that your interviewer gets about you. And I think the most common mistake I see, and I used to make the same mistake, is this question of, tell me about a challenging problem you've solved, <laughs> comes up a lot. Yeah. And most of the people will lean back on like, well, I learned about JavaScript, or when I was cloning Twitter, like this came up, which doesn't sound as impressive as I would publish an NPM package or something that differentiates you from the rest. In your experience, since you've graduated like hundreds or if not thousands of students, what are those, some of those like projects that stand out to you that our listeners can draw inspiration from? Oh man, I think about one by a man named Jaram. He was a, an immigrant from Haiti and he built like a Haitian Creole urban dictionary kind of thing. That's amazing. I mean, that's... and. It was very, it was beautiful. It was fully featured. He'd thought through like what the user interaction would actually be. So it would, it would self-moderate if more than 20% of the number of people who had thumbs up something had flagged it and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And you can, you could just tell that he'd put thought into it. I mean, I think that's, that's super cool, especially because of like international, like if you're like from a Cuban background, it's, it, the way you speak Spanish is different than somebody that's Dominican or yeah. in a different culture. Like, I'm sure same thing in Ukraine, different places. But anyway, I think that that's really cool. So speaking of international, do you guys do any international work since you all are online? Yeah, we're trying to figure it out, basically. So we, we're not at the place where we're ready to totally scale and bring in thousands of people from all over the world. Because, you know, because we're investing in students, we have to make sure we can get a return. There are different regulations and different time zones. And 
different stuff that we don't understand about everywhere, but I'm um, pretty much we're dabbling. So we, we take a few students at a time that show us that they're promising and show us that they're worth betting on. And we do it at a small scale while we while we're figuring that yeah. out. Got and uh, speaking of like students graduating and you mentioned you have uh, Lambda next, uh, what are some outcome data that you can, or outcomes data that you can share with the listeners who are considering doing a bootcamp? Uh, maybe they're getting excited now about Lambda school. Can you just share general statistics or outcomes from the last like few months or the last few years? Yeah. So, so it's kind of funny. Our first class graduated six months ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been around for about a year, but we're seven and a half months long. So it, it takes a while to, yeah. to get that data. But our first class, every single student is either, they're all working full-time as a software engineer, all of them, but one is making more than 50000 a year hired in a full-time software engineering role. And the other one started a company. That's super dope. <laughs> um, so we're we're batting kind of a thousand. We're not getting paid on the one that started a company yet. Um, we'll, we'll have to wait for him to. Yeah. Hopefully that company's successful, or he might end up looking for a yeah, job yeah. eventually. But, and so, how many graduates do you guys have to date of people that graduated or students? Yeah, so I think we've graduated about a hundred now, mm-hmm. and it's you know nice. our first classes were smaller, and it's grown over time. Yeah, awesome. yeah, no, that's, that's yeah. really cool. And then I know there's like a few thousand students. You got you got. And given that your your target user is kind of like in the poor side of things, uh, we've realized that a lot of times they may not have all the resources. So another totally. part of Lambda Next is this this housing piece, which is clearly a problem here in San Francisco. And we're going to go into your personal story about that later. But um, tell us about how Lambda is tackling housing. Yeah. So, so we've done a couple of things. The first thing that we, we started with was a, a nonprofit fund. So we had one student, he was in Florida, he was laying irrigation pipe on the weekend. Um, and they asked him, you know, I said, you know, we need you all next week full time. And he said, I can't, I'm going to school. So they just fired him. And that's something that happens relatively frequently when you're making minimum wage or honestly less than minimum wage, you know? So he came to me and said, look, I need to drop out of Lambda school. I can't get to graduation. I'm short and like, I'm sorry, I'm doing everything I can. And he was literally a month away from graduating. So I said, you know, what, what is the shortfall between where you are and like where you need to be? It's like, ah, it's $400. And so, you know, it's just like, it was driving me crazy that he'd put in six months of work. He was so close to, you know, being a really solid software engineer, like 400 bucks. Yeah. So we put together a little bit, bit of money in a fund and just like said, you know what, here's 400 bucks, pay it back after you get a job. Yeah. Three weeks later, he was making 75 K a year. That's amazing. So, you know, that is kind of where that all started. Um, now we're trying to figure out a way to make that sustainable outside of small nonprofit donations. We've, we've got three students that we're housing right now, a couple in San Francisco, one in Portland. Actually, two of them aren't students. Two of them are just people that we heard compelling stories about. And, yeah. you know, we're close to getting a job and needed a place to stay while they focus on interviewing. But to make it sustainable, we're trying, we have a house in San Francisco that we've got six students staying in. Um, That's free for them until they get a job. And then next month, we're trying another experiment that I'm really excited about, where we're actually going to pick 10 people and we're going to pay them $1,000 a month as they attend Lambda School. Yeah. Um, And then they pay it back on the other side after they graduate. That's incredible. That's incredible. So they get a stipend and housing covered and no tuition, like you don't have to pay tuition until you find a job. Yep. Our, our end goal is just to eliminate all of the distractions, right? Yeah. If, if you're somebody that we know we can bet on, we want to really bet on you. And, you know, the, the thing is, once you're making 90K as a software engineer, you can pay it back. It's not a big deal then. It's a big deal when you're making 20K a year. Yeah. yeah. I think it's important that you highlighted that $400. I think it's like most people in the US don't have $400 of savings. And I think 80% are living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. yeah. And essentially what you all are doing is, well, it's kind of like, what LeBron was doing with that promise school for younger people, but for older people. Yeah. And given that that's the case, you know, is should celeb. I mean, a lot of celebrities and influential people tend to donate money towards colleges and I'm not going to not college cause we all went to college. Mm-hmm. Should people start considering making donations to like coding boot camps and nonprofits like this? I mean, I can, I can take a couple thousand dollars and move somebody's income from 25,000 a year to $75,000 a year reliably. Right. And there are a lot of people for whom that is the shortfall and I can do that at scale, you know? So I'm, you know, it's not my place to tell famous people or politicians where they should donate money, but I 
I know that what we're doing is incredibly impactful. And on a dollar for dollar basis, you know, if you look at that guy that was making minimum wage in Florida, moved to 75K a year, you're talking millions and millions of dollars. You know, I think I did the math once. It's like $4 million increase in annual earnings, even if he never gets another raise. Yeah. Right? So even if you wanted to justify that with taxes, that's not hard to do. Yeah, yeah um, for sure. And you mentioned that you guys basically take bets on people. So for our listeners who might be interested in attending or applying, what are some of the characteristics that you guys look for? And like, what are the signals that tell you we want to take a risk and bet on you? Yeah, it, it's funny because when I talk about that, people think that we're looking for like the hidden super geniuses or something. Like that's, that's not it at all. I mean, to be clear, if you are a super genius, come find <laughs> us. Um, but we're most importantly, we're looking for somebody with like grit and passion and people that will stick to stuff when it gets hard because programming is hard. Everything, if you're going to move your income, you know, $50,000 a year, it's going to be difficult. You're going to have to learn something. But if you're, if you'll show up every day and work hard and work through it, then the rest we can take care of. So that's, that's the main thing. Yeah. Love it. And then given that, um, you know, you have all these different things that you've been doing with Lambda School. And you you have a long term goal. Like, what do you what do you think about Lambda for the future? Yeah. So so our end goal, our vision is basically to have a place where anybody can show up, and we can move them from wherever they are to the highest point of their economic potential. And we'll know where that is, and we can just take care of it. Yeah. That. So one of the you know I think a lot in terms of economics and economic productivity, and one of the biggest shortfalls of that is people that are working in places earning less than they should or yeah. doing things that are less beneficial for society than they could be doing because something holds them back. Yeah. And, and I know this might get a, a little bit emotional, but a, a lot of times what we realize is that the people that are able to solve this problem in a unique way are uniquely qualified to solve it. And you mm-hmm. actually were homeless yourself. I think that's part of, I would assume that's part of the reason why you're driven so much to do this. But can you tell us that that personal story? Yeah. So, I mean, I I come from, well, I I don't want to make it sound like I have the world against me, right? Like there are people who have a more difficult, more difficult circumstances than, than I did. So I'll say that first of all, but when I wanted to get out to Silicon Valley, I just wanted to kind of be in the epicenter of tech rent here at that time was like 800 bucks a month. Now it's like twice that. Yeah. And I just didn't have that. And, you know, so I, I was kind of like, do I stay here and like find a way to just make a living or do I try to find a way to, you know, go do that? And I think I had like 300 bucks, my name, like not much. Yeah. Um, and I had a car that I had previously bought. So I just put a, an air mattress in my Honda Civic, drove out to Palo Alto and I slept in my car for three, almost four months while I was wow. figuring things out. Yeah. Yeah. And then. We saw you online talking about like the guy who tweeted and got like retweeted by a bunch of other other people. And now, you know, can you tell a little bit about that story? And you started saying a lot of things online about that and why that resonated to you. Yeah. So so this was a gentleman named David um, and he similarly, he'd, he'd been a software engineer in Texas, I believe, in the past. Um, I had graduated with a computer science degree, mm-hmm. came out to Silicon Valley very similarly with, you know, the same thoughts and dreams and ambitions as I did. Had a little bit more money, but that money doesn't last very long when you're living in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. So he started looking for a job, ended up burning through his money, ended up living in a van and ran out of, you know, couldn't make the payments on the van and the van got repossessed. So kind of as a last straw, he, you know, wrote on a sign, I'm I'm homeless and I'm looking for a job. You know, I don't need help. Take a resume. Yeah. Um, so somebody took a picture of that and it went viral and I ended up reaching out to him and saying, hey, you know. I know what it's like to be looking for a job when you're homeless and like kind of smell and you don't really have a place to shower and you don't really have clean clothes. So we have this nonprofit fund that, you know, people have donated to and Lambda put together. Let us, let us put you up in housing. So he's currently working with our career coaches, some things that he needed to tweak on his approach and his resume and his resume is solid, but just the way he was approaching the job hunt needed a couple tweaks. Yeah. And yeah, I'm sure he's going to be just fine. But, yeah. 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 And the ironic part, a lot of the time, if you're, if you are living out of a car, a lot of resumes, a lot of job applications will ask you for your address yeah. and things like yeah. that. And it kind of puts you in a position of if you're in San Francisco, 
do you put your address from Arizona and kind of expose that you're not from around here? Right. Or like what address do you even put in? So it's definitely still like issues that people have to overcome, uh, even if they're already in tech, even if they're out here on the streets, like trying to get a job. From your experience, what should people be doing to get a job quicker once they have the skills? So tactic wise, I think one of the easiest ways to, you know, to make the job hunt faster is to look in the places that other people aren't looking. And that's, it seems obvious when you say it, but you know, I don't know how many people I've talked to that are like, Oh, I can't get a job. And like, okay, where have you applied to? And it's Google, Amazon, Apple, (laughs) Netflix. It's like, okay, I, you know, I couldn't get a job there. Nobody can get a job there. So one of my favorite things to do is say, you know, look at the, the fortune 500 companies go about 150 down. So those are the companies you've probably yeah. never heard of, but they're still like 15,000 employees. Yep. So for example, Dr. Horton's, which is like a, an apothecary pharmacy in New mm-hmm. York, they had a mandate last year to hire like 250 software engineers. Interesting. And yeah. people don't apply to Dr. Horton's, yeah. right? Yeah. Like you is don't, that the lip balm or something else? Uh, it's, like a, it's like a Walgreens. Oh, basically. Yeah. oh yeah. yeah. So that, like, that's the number one thing that I would recommend. Normally, if there's somebody who is having a hard time getting a job, either A, they can't program well enough, which happens. Yeah. B, they are not sending out enough applications. I talk to people sometimes like, yeah, I can't get a job. Mm-hmm. Where have you applied to? Oh, these three places. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a numbers game to some yeah. degree. And then the third place, third thing is like, where are you looking? Yeah. Obviously there's, there are elements of what does your portfolio look like? And you know, at, at a certain point in Lambda School, we talk about moving from substance to presentation. Yeah. And you need to not only be a solid software engineer, but people need to not have to question if you're a solid software engineer. Yeah. So they need to look at your resume, look at your portfolio and say, yeah, this guy, yeah. bring him in. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And um, given that Lambda is relatively new, what are some things that people don't know about Lambda that they should know about Lambda? And, you know, what are some things that you've wanted to share about Lambda that you've never shared about Lambda that you could get exclusively dropped on the Breaking Shots podcast? Exclusively. Let's see. You heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) I think people don't realize how closely we work with industry partners to create our curriculum Mm -hmm. and to build what we're teaching. So people come in thinking that it's either an accident or something that we just dreamed up at night, but it's, it's really driven specifically to get you a job. We know what it takes to get you a job and we know what you have to do to get there. Another is they underestimate the importance that career coaching plays. Yeah. A lot of people are like, yeah, you know, you know how to code, go get a job. And it, it can be one little thing that's off yep. and that's enough to blow hundreds of applications. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that Lambda Next and the, the coaching element is, is really important. And we, we honestly spend almost as much now helping you get a job after you graduate than actually training you in the program. We spend wow. a lot of money training you in the program, yeah. to be clear. Yeah. So yeah, I think, you know, it's just a, a different approach that you take as a school that's free up front. Got yeah, it. For sure. And we have a lot of like followers, a lot of uh, listeners who are interested in tech. Some of them have hesitations, but they're super eager to be part of tech. And so if you were speaking or giving advice to someone who is maybe like in their twenties or thirties who knows about tech, maybe they're considering learning to code or another profession, like what advice would you give to them to like, what actions would you recommend for them to take to position them to first learn about the tech ecosystem? And then second of all, actually uh, put themselves on a path to get a job. Yeah. I think the first thing I would say is don't be intimidated, right? Like it's easy to be intimidated when you read some guy's blog post, who's been writing code for 25 years. And he's like, you won't be able to code for 15 years or something like that. And you can contribute pretty quickly. And it's, it's not, it's hard, right? Don't get me wrong. It's hard, but it's not rocket science. So I think the thing that most people regret is just not getting in fast enough and not, not starting now. And, you know, I talk to people all the time that had the idea five years ago, I'd really like to program. And five years later, here they are and nothing's changed. So I would, you know, go to Lambda School, take one of our free intro courses. It costs absolutely nothing. There's no deposit. There's no fee afterwards. It's completely, completely free. Test it out. We start from the very basics of, you know, if you know how to turn a computer on, you're good enough. We'll teach you how to open up a text editor and start writing your first lines of code and see if you can catch the bug. That's, that's what yeah, I recommend. Awesome. And you guys also have other, other, like, I guess, disciplines besides coding, right? 
Yeah. So, so what are some of those? Um, so we have web development, um, so full stack web development, iOS development, Android development, data science, and UX design. Mm-hmm. So if you're more artistic, we have a yeah. design program. So, so basically, it, like, how does it break down in terms of like, because you guys are still relatively new, I guess you said mentioned a year. So in terms of like a number of graduates and people going through the programs, how do those uh, programs break down so people get a sense like what they should focus on? So we've actually only graduated people in the full stack web development mm-hmm. program. Yeah. Our first data science grads will be in October. And then right. iOS started the first time last month. Yeah. Um, so July. And then UX and Android start for the first time in October. Mm-hmm. Got, it. Got it. So the one of the, the nice things, if you're one of the early students, is it's a we keep it a very small class size to begin. So it's mm-hmm. like you and five other people and the instructor mm-hmm. that's getting yeah. paid. I mean, we lose money on the first several classes. Course, yeah. um, so if you want very hands-on, one-on-one yeah. help. We have lots of um, people reaching out to us who want to do data science yeah, a lot. and other mm-hmm. yeah. types. So that's is awesome. The, is the vision, to, I know we talked about the vision with the income and thing, but like, are you planning on becoming like the Coursera that has coaching and job like all the way through and through type of thing? Or like, because you're going to open to different skill sets. Like what's your... What's your vision in regards to like new courses or new tracks? So, so one of the interesting things about that is the tracks play into each other. So for example, if you take the UX course, you'll do 15 weeks of UX and then you can choose either iOS, Android or web development and you'll do 10 weeks of that and then you go into our apprenticeship program. So you know, we found that employers, you know, they don't want somebody that can just design, for example, they want somebody that can design, but also understands the platforms that they're designing for, understands the constraints of being a web developer. So, you know, similarly, if you do, for example, the iOS curriculum, you go into the computer science curriculum and you learn the same computer science stuff, you know, you're writing Python, you're writing C, you're writing lower level algorithms because you still need to know how a computer works, even if you know your front end is iOS. Yeah. So, you know, over time that will become much more granular and more flexible. So it's just like, this is what I want to do. I want to learn, you know, pick these three things. And then the apprenticeship, which I don't even, we haven't talked about as much. Um, we have an in-house apprenticeship that's wow. five weeks where you basically show up, you have a senior developer, you have code reviews every day, and you build a project for somebody that goes on the portfolio at the, at the end of the, the five-week program. Wow. What, um, what else have we, have we not talked about at Land? I can't believe I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, is it one, one of your hiring partners or who are the companies that offer the apprenticeships? So sometimes it's hiring partners and sometimes we do it in-house. So mm-hmm. if we don't have enough projects, then we'll just create them for other companies. Or you know, we have, we have some partnerships with some you know, Upwork, Gigster type companies yeah. that will, will send us stuff. We're working on bigger companies. I probably shouldn't talk about yet but we'll be building for some pretty major platforms in a really cool way nice really cool that's exciting and uh in the pre-chat you mentioned that not only is your course remote but you have a distributed team and for those listeners who don't know what it's like to be on a distributed team can you kind of break down how you put together this rockstar team who are not based in san francisco so that's actually one of the key components that makes lambda school work really well is we you know, we can't afford to compete with, you know, Google salaries. I talked to somebody a couple of weeks ago that was making 600K a year at Google. And like, we just, we can't pay that, you know. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is we can find people that are at Google or Apple that are making 300K a year. And we can say, hey, we'll pay you 120K a year and you can leave the Bay Area. <laughs> you can <laughs> go buy a house somewhere. So all of our instructors are remote. They're all over the, the U.S., and yeah, we just use Slack and video conferencing to talk to each other. And then once a year, we get together in person. Nice, nice. Cool. So, yeah. Yeah. So at this point in the podcast, we do the lightning round. And you said you listened to a few episodes, so it's going to be easy for you. Basically, we're going to ask you for strategies and your resources that our listeners can implement as their career transitioning. So take it away, yeah. guys. All right. So this question is actually pretty interesting to ask you because you're someone who moved to a brand new city and lived in, out of a car. But imagine you got uh, dropped in a new city again and you only had $100. What would you do and how would you spend that $100 to break into tech? To break into tech. I mean, the, the first thing, I mean, I still think about just like basic food, shelter. So I would find a hostel. Or sometimes, I mean, there's rarely like room in homeless shelters. So covering housing would be the hard part. 
So my setup in Palo Alto was I had a car with an air mattress that I would inflate halfway so you could kind of put it from the passenger seat to the trunk and you can just lay like that. And then I got a low income pass at the YMCA for showering that costs like 11 bucks a month. And then I worked out of the Hacker Dojo, which is a free community open workspace. So I, on average, I would spend about 75 bucks a month. So I don't know what it's like if you get dropped in San Antonio, but I can, I can tell you what to do if you're in Palo Alto. Yeah. Yeah. So given that you have these thoughts about the future of work, do you plan on sending your kids to college? No, I don't know. I mean, it's so hard to like, I can't see far enough ahead to know what it will be like, but I know it won't be what it is today. Yeah. So I don't know if universities will reform or if like something's got to give. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask one more thing related yeah, to that? So speaking of universities reforming, do you, I know they've tried things like edX or whatever. What are things that you think traditional universities can do in order to stay relevant? Cause they are these like 250 year old brands and to keep up with the pace of technology. Cause like you said, there's Lambda school that's going to obviously like scale like crazy, but there's so many, so much need you know, mm-hmm. in these institutes are educating. Are there things that they could do to continue to serve people? Partner with us. So we're working with a couple of universities right now that will, another thing I can't talk about that I probably shouldn't have mentioned at all, but yeah, work with schools that spend a hundred percent of their time keeping up to date because that's something that schools have a very difficult time to do. And I, I think where the biggest change needs to happen is with the accrediting agencies. Yeah. So as long as schools are forced to have four years of curriculum that teach this and this and this, and you have to have a full-time librarian on staff, even if you're in online school, and it, it just there's so much of that regulation that doesn't make sense in this day and age. I think if, you know, I would guess in the next year or two, there will be two year long applied degrees in computer science. That will be good. I'd still think two years is kind of like a middle, like you're only two years because you have to be two years to get the degree sometimes. But, but yeah, I, I'd like to see more flexibility. It drives me nuts when I have somebody who's, you know, a student that's 32 years old and they went back to school for two and a half years and still don't have anything to show for it. That's, that's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So on the podcast, we always tell people that if you want to achieve anything like a career transition, time management is actually one of the biggest factors that keeps someone away from their goal. I know you're a father, you're also a CEO of a company. Can you share some of the tactics you use to manage your time and maybe some of the stuff from your daily routine, like what time you get up and maybe some of the things throughout the day that help you focus and uh, in the execution mode? Yeah. So I just have to schedule every minute of my day, right? You know, so um, I usually get up about 6.30, feed the baby, then kind of get ready and go into work right after that. Um, I should go to the gym, but I haven't been doing that as much as I (laughs) should. Work has been taking all that time. And then, yeah, every, you know, I have a a calendar at the end of every day. So about seven or eight, I'll, you know, sit down and I'll schedule what my next day will look like. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's huge because, you know, I find if you're, if there's ever a time when you don't know what you should be working on, you end up working on the wrong thing. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, how do you prioritize um, things that come your way? Because as a CEO, you probably get pulled in so many different meetings, internal or external. How do you prioritize what things um, you say yes to and what things you say no to? Yeah, so it, it's kind of changed over time as Lambda has grown. Like in the early days, I'd say yes to everything because there wasn't that much of it. Now, like I, I can't even respond to all the email I get, you know? So it it really, we you know, we have a a mission and a strategy that we're trying to implement for, you know, every 18 months at, at Lambda. And I focus on things that will help us achieve those things. And I say no to everything else. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And speaking of not being able to respond to emails, you also declared Twitter bankruptcy, which means your DMs <laughs> are, are blown up. But that, that means that you're doing something right. I mean, you got people clamoring at your door. So something that we hear a lot from people that listen to the podcast and watch the videos is they're not good at Twitter. How do, how do we get better at Twitter? Like you're, you're amazing at it. I mean, so, so Twitter for me isn't like... It isn't something I even consciously do. It's just so I read a lot and I think about stuff. And then every once in a while, I'm like, oh, that, that thought is good enough that I should share it. So it's not like, I don't know, people come to me like, hey, what's your content strategy? Like, how do you, you know, decide? And it's just like, it's stream of conscious as I'm yeah. going about the day. I, you know, the easiest way to get good at 
tweeting interesting stuff is to read inter- interesting stuff. So I read a lot, but that's, I don't know. That's all the advice I have. The, yeah. the hard, the hard thing about Twitter is remaining honest as the follower account grows yeah. because you make more people mad as time goes along. And it like, it gets a little, it wears on you a little bit, you know, yeah. but what's the most interesting connection you've gotten through your DMS? Would you say Twitter, oh, Twitter is more valuable than LinkedIn to you from a networking perspective? Oh, a hundred X. Yeah. Yeah. I met Patrick Collison and Mark wow. Andreessen through Jeez. Twitter DMs. Yeah. And probably half of our investors through Twitter. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that is part of why we got into Y Combinator. I know that that's how we got introduced to our, the lead of our last investors. I mean, I probably get, I'm not going to say that. I mean, you just yeah. 10X the 10X with the 100X. That's, that's what's up, man. I see. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's um, we definitely all uh, realize that some of our uh, biggest success stories in our community of people who broke in, it all started with the GM, including how Ruben got connected to Bulaji when mm-hmm. we first moved out to the West Coast. So it's definitely a useful tool. In addition to cold emails and other things we recommend, we're about to wrap up. But before we do, I wanted to ask you another question about the industry trends. So we're seeing uh, companies like General Assembly getting acquired by staffing firms. And we're seeing this trend of companies or boot camps focusing on uh, corporate education too. In your opinion, kind of what are you, what are you seeing from, um, since you're on the ground in terms of where the industry is heading? And uh, is um, boot camp the right solution for corporate education or how, how do you see it play out over the next few years? Yes. So what it comes down to is companies have way more money than people do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, if you're a company that wants to transition somebody from point A to point B, the company will generally pay more money than the person will. So I think boot camps make a lot of sense for the entry level because it's hard to convince a company to pay for you to, you know, gain your education because mm-hmm. nobody cares about you yet. That said, I think, you know, long term, we've had instances where companies will buy out an income share agreement or where a company will pay for a person's training because they say, you know, we want this person to know how to program. I think we'll get there. It just takes a while. Like that's another piece of the marketplace you have to have solved far in advance. It's it's different to say, hey, we have this person who's already a software engineer now just hire them versus, hey, why don't you pay us $20,000? We'll take that random person off the street and train them to be a software engineer so they can work for you. That's just a, a big leap. Yeah. But I think we'll get there. Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting point about buying out the income share agreements. There's other things too, like like things like guild education that offer like education as a benefit. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Where so like companies will essentially like pay for your tuition. Mm-hmm. Like that's normally for college. Do you see a world where companies will pay for boot camps or like if like if for a mid mid level person that might want to switch to a different role to help with retention because. People are switching careers all the time, and the average tenor in tech is one to two years. Mm-hmm. But to keep them in the company, you think that people will offer that as a benefit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think about like there have been companies like Pluralsight, right? Who mm-hmm. they're they only Huge. sell to companies. They just you know they went public. Yeah, that's a Utah company, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and my old stomping grounds. Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean that's it's it's a different model because that is very like you're selling to the employer. So that you can provide to the employee, like, hey, here are these 80 million things that you could learn. And the thing that makes me a little nervous about that is usually the learner is much less invested in the education in that model than they are in the bootcamp model, because it's just like, yeah, this is something that's there if I want it. And most people don't use it as much as, you know, that that's their big challenge, right? Is employer churn because they're like, yeah, none of our employees use this. So Motivation is hard to solve for, but I, I think there's I think there's a combination of the two that's really interesting. Yeah, and what's one if you could only send one tweet, and this was like the final tweet that you could ever send the f- that everyone in the world will see <laughs> that everyone in the world will see what it would be. Jeez, um, you know how I talk about not having a content strategy and not thinking <laughs> things up in advance. Consciousness. I just say bye to everybody. I'd say bye. email me. <laughs> send me an email Lambda, Lambda follow me on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Instagram so yeah yeah with that said like what's the best way to stay in touch with you probably Twitter honestly Twitter yeah Austin Alred yep. A-U-S-T-E-N A-L-L-R-E-D look at that for the duel let's break in yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks man, man Austin yeah thank let's you break in. appreciate you bro thanks for checking us out 
We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.